Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as a church that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through His means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, last time we saw the radical vision that Ezekiel witnessed as a priest and a prophet, uh, where he saw the, the pile of dead bones And as he preached over them, rather than doing sacrifices or any of those uh, priestly works to cleanse the bones, the Lord simply assembled an army of people from the pile of bones, showing indeed that the Word of God has authority. So I thought if we're going to talk about the Word of God having authority, we need to talk about how do we know what is the Word of God, what's not the Word of God. Uh, How do we know which words we listen to and which words we do not listen to? I think the Belgic Confession has a very good article making the case that we receive the Word of God. As Reformed uh, people, this is what we believe. We receive the canon of Scripture rather than resting in the church declaring uh, the canon of Scripture. And so when we consider this, this Word of God and we talk about the Lord's Word, we We might wonder then, how do we know what to accept as true? How do we discern the true words of God versus the false words of God? How do we know what's the true canon, what's not the true canon? Uh, How do we know that we truly receive the word of God rather than just resting and declaring the word of God? And so as we consider this, we'll see first you receive the word. Basically, we're launching off of 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. So you receive the word, you heard from us. Secondly, third, accepted as the word of God. And fourth, at work in you. Basically taking this verse and talking about different points within uh, the verse that are significant. So first of all, receiving the word of God. When the Belgian Confession writes this, It wants to distinguish us basically from two traditions, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. So the Roman Catholics would believe that the canon is a canon because the Pope has declared it so or the church has declared it so, right? Uh, The Eastern Orthodox would claim that their tradition is continuous, going all the way back to the apostles. And as they have this tradition and the fathers tell them what is Uh, the tradition and what is truth and what is error, that it's close to Rome in the sense that, again, the fathers declare the canon. So it's important to understand both traditions have a parallel. Now, Eastern Orthodox wouldn't wrestle or wouldn't rest in the Pope so much, but still, both traditions have the claim that it's the church declaring the canon. And so when you look at the Belgic Confession, it uses a clear language. We receive these books. We receive the canon. Now, in terms of the Eastern Orthodox claim, uh, when you look at their long history going back to the apostles, much like Rome, uh, when we look at the original sources, we can say probably the best we can, we can see 
is that they go back to the fourth century. So this claim that they have a tradition going all the way back to the apostles is not a true claim. Rome, we look at Rome saying that the church is infallible in its ruling. While they had Trent, they had Vatican. Uh, having these councils clearly shows that Rome itself is not something that's infallible, right? Because they revise things, they, they change some of their doctrine, and certainly clarify things. So once you have Vatican, you have Trent, you're making clear that it's not a tradition that's as infallible as the, as the Roman Catholics would have you believe. So we have two claims, and then immediately when we look at this, Eastern Orthodox, maybe 4th century at best, Roman Catholic, we see that they revise their, their tradition. We don't want to wrestle and rest in what the church has said. Church history certainly bears weight, but we don't want to say that we have this continuous uh, tradition that's infallible. Going on then, what, what do we as Protestants offer? What are we fundamentally believing? Well, there's two things that we say in the Belgic Confession. There, there's two basic uh, criteria for the canon. The first, or I guess I'm, I'm flipping them around and how the Belgic lays them out, but what I'm putting first is that the word of God is confirmed. So this would be Moses, when he's ordained as a prophet and receives his calling in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord makes very clear, I'm going to raise a prophet like unto you. In other words, there's going to be a prophetic tradition where the Lord raises up men to bring the word of God through these men and we say, well, how do we know if a prophet's of God, right? That's a valid question. How do we know the prophet's a true prophet? Well, his word has to come true and has to come to pass, which is what the Belgian Confession is saying, that the canon of Scripture, that we see that the Old Testament prophets are confirmed in the apostles, uh, what we see with Christ. So the prophets, apostles, both looking to the same Christ. Prophets looking ahead, apostles looking back, but it's the, the one Christ, the incarnate word of God that confirms these words. But the other standard, and this is where the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics especially, say that, that we can be a little subjective in this. And that we say that the word of God is self-attesting. In the sense that the Spirit bears witness, we read the Word of God, and we intuitively know, yes, this is the Word of God. This, this is obvious, this is self-attesting, this is true, this is consistent with the gospel message. So those are basically the, the two standards of what we would say with canon. And so how do we know then that this is truly true? Uh, we want to certainly uh, go on and consider this. And this is where, with the Belgian Confession, citing 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it's very helpful to, to understand what this is saying. Because the church in Thessalonica is experiencing persecution. So there's obviously this question, how do we know this gospel's real? How, how do we know that it's really worth uh, struggling for this Christ? And is this gospel real if we're suffering and it's hardship? 
right? That's why in the context of this, Paul is saying, listen, we as apostles, we've experienced hardship. You know the persecution, the burden that we endured in bringing this message to you. So even the apostles, who are the messengers of God, experience the same sort of weight. Another thing this church is wrestling with is, what do we do with the dead? You know, if Christ comes again, as Christ said he's returning, uh, are the dead going to miss out, right? It's a valid question. If you're a Gentile, you haven't been exposed to the Old Testament scriptures, you don't know of Elijah raising the dead, the, the resurrection, you think, well, that, that's something for Christ, but, but what does that really mean for us? And so Paul's giving the assurance that, that those who have died in the faith, they're not going to miss out. Uh, we're, we're certainly going to see Christ and all fellowship and commune with Christ for eternity as glorified individuals. But it's also this understanding where Paul exhorts this church to get back to work. And, and we don't know exactly what's going on. We, we kind of piece together that it seems pretty likely uh, that some of these people aren't working anymore. Uh, they're expecting Christ to come again. So they're they're saying, hey, if Christ is coming again, why go to work, right? I mean, what's the point? I'm just going to be taken to heaven, so we're just going to wait for the joyride. Basically, it seems to be a bit of the, the mindset. And so Paul's saying, listen, we, we don't know when Christ is returning. Maybe, you know, that certainly you can see maybe there's, there's thinking in the apostles where they think it's more, it's earlier than later. Whatever the case, Paul's saying just go to work. Live that peaceful, quiet life. Uh, don't just you know, do what you want to do. Don't just wait for Christ to come again. Um, go about your business. Live that peaceful and quiet life and be content doing the mundane, right? That's something we have trouble with as Christians, being content and doing that mundane day-to-day -day thing and actually believing that we're living out the gospel in that process. But that's what Paul exhorts the church to do. It's what he exhorts us to do. So notice then as Paul as we sort of consider the, the big picture of this letter, as he writes to the church, he wants them to understand that they've received and heard the word of God. So it's important to understand this language because this is what, what we're saying about canon. It's not Paul's declaring the word of God and because the apostle Paul declares it to be so it is the word of God. I mean, certainly as an apostle, he's a messenger. But as Paul brings the word of God, there's something bigger going on here. They're actually discerning and receiving this word. Now, we think about this receiving of the word, and I mentioned an apostolic tradition when we talk about this in a proper reform sense. When we talk about this, what does Paul say? Well, when he writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11, he says he receives from the Lord. And what does he receive from the Lord? The tradition of the Lord's Supper and how it is conducted. So an apostle, one who speaks the authoritative word of God as canon with authority as God himself as a messenger like a prophet, receives from Christ what he is to say. So we think of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, the Lord putting his that the words in Moses' mouth and a prophet like unto Moses. So he comes as an authoritative messenger, but still he can only bring the word of Christ, not his own word. Paul also says to the Corinthian church, the gospel, 
I preached, you took, and these become the words of life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. We have also the Apostle Paul, where he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, the gospel that I received, that Christ died and was raised. So again, it's the Apostle receiving the gospel from, from God himself and bringing the gospel. Galatians 1, verse 9, one last example where you have the Apostle Paul saying, preaching a, a contrary gospel than what you received. So in other words, he's saying to the Galatian church, you have received and know the true gospel. You know it. It's there. Why is it these men come in and, and, and rattle your faith and shake you up when you know it's wrong? Because you've received the true gospel. And now you embrace a false gospel gospel, right? So it's what the Belgic Confession is saying. As we're looking at the New Testament, we're seeing how the canon, the gospel of Christ is self-attesting. But we think also in this message about how Paul preaches this gospel. He's preaching the completed work of Christ. So when Paul preaches this gospel, He's basically, he's standing with the apostles, right? Ephesians 2.20, built on the prophets and the apostles. And so it's the prophets who predict the coming Christ. Paul, who's affirming with the apostles that Christ has come. So it's taking the Old Testament prophecies and saying, here's the fulfillment, the realization of what has happened. And so as people read this, they say, oh, well, this is the gospel, Right? Here's what the prophets have said. Here's what the apostles say. Uh, this message is consistent. It's affirming what, what we've already received, and we know it's true. Now we can say, oh, you're reading too much into this. This isn't really what's happening in the church. Until we turn to Acts 17. What do we find there in Acts 17 with the apostle Paul praising the Berean church? Well, in Acts 17, verse 11... The Bereans are those who search the word of God. So they're searching in the word of God. Now, what word do they have? Well, uh, the apostle Paul at this point is in a preaching ministry in, in Acts, right? So they don't have the New Testament letters we have. So they're taking the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament writings. They're hearing what the apostle Paul is saying, and they're comparing his words to what the prophets have said. And so they're searching the scriptures, as Paul says, to see if what he is saying is true. So where the Belgic Confession says, even the blind can see these prophecies are fulfilled. Well, that's what's going on with Berea. They search the scriptures, they hear Paul, and they say, wow, here's what the prophet said, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's not just speaking on his own. He's speaking in the context of the tradition of what the prophets have said in the inspired tradition, not the tradition of the fathers, as Eastern Orthodoxy would say, but in the tradition of what the prophets have predicted. Christ is bringing, uh, or Paul is bringing the gospel of Christ. Now you can say, okay, well, that's one example that we can find with the Apostle Paul with the authority of the canon. But there's another example that's important. Think of the road to Emmaus. 
we're there, we don't have any apostles officially called at this point in Luke 24, right? So Christ is, is literally freshly raised up from the dead in Luke 24. It just happened that morning. No apostolic witness, no apostolic letters. Christ is raised from the dead. You have the men who are walking the road to Emmaus and, and kind of taken back that here's this Christ they thought was a Messiah. And as he's a Messiah, he died and, and he died and he failed and they don't know what to do, right? That's, that's their discussion. We, we thought he was the Christ. We thought he was the one who had come to save Israel, but clearly we were misinformed, right? So, so that's their, their wrestling, that, that's their struggle. Ironically, here's Christ, the incarnate word of God, raised from the dead, walking with them. And what does Christ do? Well, Christ doesn't just assert the reality of who he is. That's not the only thing he does. He certainly does that. But he goes through the Old Testament. Luke 24, verse 44. He goes through the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, basically, or, or the law, the prophets, and, and the, the Psalms, or the writings, which would be the threefold division of the Old Testament canon. And so as he's going through the canon, he's saying, this is what the prophets have said. This is what I have done. So they're right. Christ did come. He, he did die. He was crucified. But Christ is saying, you're misreading what the prophets said. It's not a failure in my mission. It's a failure to understand what the word of God has said. So there we, we see uh, basically, in a very quick summary fashion, the, the, the reformers thinking, aren't we? That we're not declaring the canon. We're receiving the canon. This is what the apostles did. This is what Christ did. So when Paul commends this church, he's saying to the church that when we stood up and you heard the gospel, intuitively you knew this was the gospel of Christ. You knew this was the authoritative word of God. It's not just our words, where we're not just making things up and making bold claims. We're not just philosophers. We're bringing the true word of God that's self-attesting that you've received. Not that they've declared, not that they've affirmed, but they receive it. They know it's true at their very core. So going on then in terms of knowing that the church receives uh, this authoritative gospel. We don't declare it. We receive it. We, we know it's true. It's self-attesting. The Apostle Paul says, you heard from us. Now, when you hear this word of the apostles, and the Apostle Paul is calling this to their attention, you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, is Paul speaking of preaching of the gospel. So when, when we hear this, we can say, well, it's just a message, Right? series of words, things that we can put together. It's just another sentence is what we might want to say. But this is where I think it's important when we look at Ezekiel and we look at the apostolic gospel. That's not what the apostle Paul says. That's not what the prophet Ezekiel is teaching us. That there is a power behind this word. That, that this gospel is life-transforming. That, that there's something that as this gospel goes forth, there's something that God does through this word and the power of his spirit to create life and to sustain true spiritual life. And so when Paul commends the church in this, he's saying, listen, 
you, you didn't just hear a bunch of philosophers make a persuasive case. You heard the gospel of Christ. You, you said this is true. You bore fruits of, of the Spirit working through this message. And as, as Paul says this, he's saying you didn't hear this not as a word of men, right? So that would be me standing up here making some sort of radical claim, laying out some sort of philosophical possibility of a way to consider life. That, that would be a claim of man. Maybe some wisdom in that. Maybe something helpful. But it's really not authoritative, right? It's, it's something where you hear it saying, hmm, some of that's helpful, some of that's beneficial, but I'm going to kind of weigh it against some other philosophers. That would be a word of man. And that's what Paul is saying. You, you didn't receive it as just some word where somebody stood up and, and gave this, this helpful, maybe encouraging message that may have motivated you for a day. He's saying, but what it really is, the word of God. This is something powerful that Paul is laying out here. That the apostolic gospel is the word of God. The prophetic gospel is the word of God. It's not just a word. It's not just an opinion. It's not just the Apostle Paul thinking about something creative. In fact, when you hear of his conversion, it's quite the opposite. You know, Paul, when he recounts it, what does the Lord say? Saul, Saul, stop kicking against the goads. Which means Paul doesn't want to believe Christ is a Messiah. Spirit's working on him. Paul's saying, I don't want to believe it. I want to continue to kick against it. And so you have this radical call on the Damascus Road where the Lord grabs him literally, or basically grabs him and says, I am the Christ, deal with it. It's basically the Lord's message to Paul. And so he's transformed by this. Paul knows this is not just Paul persuaded of some philosophical system. He is persuaded by the resurrected Christ. Peter himself is a Belgian confession sites, or at least one of the proof texts that the Belgian Confession uses, which I think is helpful, is in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, where Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the Apostle Paul affirming rightly what the Thessalonian church receives. Paul's not bringing a message he wants to fundamentally believe. I think this is where it's uh, pretty significant that Paul's saying this to the church. Paul did not want to believe Christ was a Messiah. Paul's own testimony bears witness to that. But by the power of God, by the grace of God, he submits to this. Really not one where he has much of a choice, where he's broken on the road. But the reality is, this is what Paul is saying to the church. You discerned, you knew the gospel we brought was not like the philosophers, not like the charlatans of your age. It's the gospel of Christ. And you know it intuitively. As Paul himself recounts his mission of what they are hearing and what it means that they have heard the gospel. Paul recounts the message in Isaiah in Acts 28, 26, of one who will hear and never understand, right? And so it's not that, that, that the word of God is just a persuasive message. As Isaiah is sent out in Isaiah 6, you, you have that frustration where he's going out to call the people, and the Lord works through this gospel as the Lord desires to work through it. So Paul knows it. 
But what does Paul also say about the gospel? In another letter in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing. So hearing is that important thing that we have from the Old Testament prophets, right? You hear the word of God, you, you believe the word of God. It's like that true knowledge that we've talked about in Hosea. It's not just a cognitive persuasion. It's truly knowing in the sense that you bow the knee to Christ. Galatians 3 verse 2, once again, you have the people coming to faith. Is it by works or did they hear by faith? So when Paul writes this to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, the point I'm making is that Paul is saying this hearing is something that is consistent with this canonical word. That is not just to the Thessalonian church. This is consistent. And Paul's understanding the gospel preaching, people hear this message, discern the truth of the message, and as they hear this message, it becomes the words of life, life transforming, and does something. But we think this is not just Paul. This is important because... Sometimes when you listen to some of the Eastern Orthodox lectures, what do they say? Well, the church goes back to the apostles, the apostles, right? Rome would say that too. We go back to the apostolic tradition. All right, well, as Reformed people, we want to discern what the apostles taught. And in the apostolic tradition, what we have in the canon of Scripture, that's where we limit it. That's what we want to see. But we also see Moses because we want to see the church not only in the apostles, but also in the prophets, Moses himself, in Exodus 15, verse 26, he speaks, in, of, he speaks of hearing or obeying the word of God, which is what the apostle Paul, I would argue, is building on as an ex-rabbi who's turned apostle, uh, as one who promotes the pharisaical uh, stipulations and rules and regulations. He's one who understands Moses very well. So when he says here, it's not just, again, cognitive persuasion. In other words, I hear this message, I evaluate this message, look at other philosophies and go, oh, well, this message seems more rational, more palatable. I think I'll go with the Christian message. Hearing is that life-transforming power where we consciously want to obey. We can find this throughout Moses and throughout his writings in the Pentateuch and how Moses speaks of this hearing as obeying the call of God. And so the point of this, when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, wrestling with what do we do with the dead? Is God bigger than death? What do we do with, with, with life and, and, and our ethics? How, how do we go through this persecution knowing that we, we heard this gospel, this gospel's come to us, is this message real? Paul's saying you heard the message. You received the message. You know the message is real. So once you experience in life, don't let that rattle where you are personally. The reality is the message is bigger than what you're experiencing. This is why it's important for Paul to recount his persecution. We got persecuted. We experienced the, the setbacks. We know what, what the Jews are doing and the Lord sees it and the Lord's dealing with it, etc. And so it's that assurance that this message is real. You have heard it, you have discerned it, you have received it, and you know that this word is real. It is self-attesting. Going on then, as Paul says, they accepted 
as the word of God. So remember this, this acceptance as we think about this and what the Belgic has said, that the word of God is proven as it comes to fulfillment, but the spirit also testifies. So as the spirit testifies, it means that, that the spirit is testifying within us that this word is certain and is true. And so when, when Paul speaks of this, what, what is he saying in this verse? Well, he says, we thank you that you've received the word of God, you've heard from us and accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. You hear a theme repeated in this verse. Two times he repeats the word of God. So they've received it, they know it's true, and they've accepted this word. So what does it mean when we think about this acceptance? Because it does sound rather subjective, right? Well, I'm going to accept what God says, or I'm not going to accept what God says. I'm going to really believe that I should live my life for God, but maybe in this area I don't want to accept what God is saying. Is that what Paul means? Well, if that's what Paul means, it means the word of God is not very authoritative, is it? And this is where we have to understand what he intends with this acceptance. This acceptance is not saying that the fathers had passed this tradition down or the Pope has approved it, therefore it's true, but it's acceptance in the sense of we really embrace the word of God. So they've heard it as we've talked about it. So this means that as they hear the word of God, they desire to obey the word of God. Accepting the word of God means that they know that this is the word that comes from God. So when you look at this in scripture, this acceptance is not some subjective thing where we kind of go through and say, well, maybe this is authoritative, maybe it's not. When we look at the word of God, when we look at it like the Bereans, we look at the men on the road to Emmaus, they hear the word of God, they hear the prophecies, they understand what is true and what is false. Paul, writing to the Galatians, that letter authoritative. It's not that we just pick and choose and say, well, I want to accept this part and maybe not this part. It's understanding that as Paul is writing the apostolic gospel, we want to accept that gospel as true. As we examine that gospel, we want to truly know what this gospel is teaching. And as we know it, we're seeking to live it out. That's simply what acceptance means. That is not just, well, it's kind of a nice persuasive case to the apostles were very great preachers and as they, they presented this in a very forceful manner, I guess we can accept it. No, the apostle Paul is saying you ordered your life in light of what we said. And as you ordered your life in light of the word of God, you knew intuitively that what we said to you was certain and true. So this acceptance of what they're doing is embracing the word of God in such a way that they know that this word is true. They're orienting their life in light of it, and they're seeking to live it out. So that's, as I said, very briefly, that's the point of acceptance. But lastly, notice what Paul says. This gospel where you've ordered your life, before we start saying, well, I better get busy, I better start working, and I better prove myself worthy of God's grace. What's that work in us? This is where we see that, that valley of dry bones being so significant. Not only does it cultivate life or, or bring life to death, but it also sustains life. 
Because notice what Paul says. It's this gospel that is at work in you. So basically the class of believers as he writes this to the church. So it is distinguishing, right? There are those who believe the word of God and there are those who do not believe the word of God, right? It doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. It just means there are those who are the class where the word of God is at work, conforming them to Christ. And there's a class of people where the word of God is not at work in them at this very moment and at this time. And what the Lord is pleased to do the Lord will do. So when we talk about this word of God being at work in us, it's testifying to the spirit that's at work in us. So this is what the Belgian Confession tells us, that the spirit bears testimony. Now you talk to a Roman Catholic, and especially Roman Catholics, they find this rather comical. They say, well, you're saying the word of God is just something that's subjective. I just feel that it's the word of God. And they say, I want something more certain. I want the Pope to tell me what is the word of God and what's not the word of God. Well, the thing to to point out if you ever encounter that objection is, first of all, that's not the only standard we have as Reformed people, right? That's not the only thing we say. We don't just say, well, the Spirit testifies, and therefore I just kind of feel that that God's speaking through this, right? That's not what we're saying. We say there's also the clarity that the word of God comes to pass. And so it's important to understand that. As I've mentioned with Rome, it's important to bring out Trent, Vatican, Calvin himself in in his institutes goes through a series of contradictions in terms of Roman Catholic councils contradicting themselves. And so if they want to say, well, the church is infallible, all right, well, it doesn't seem like it's very infallible when it's contradicting itself because if it's truly infallible, It's going to continually make the same rulings again and again and again. And the honest truth of history is that's not the case. So if a Roman Catholic comes to you and says, well, see, this is why you Reformed people are silly, it's important to know these things. Bring it out. And I'm not saying this uh, to be snarky. It's truly for, for their heart and soul. I mean, to really understand this is the word of God. There is an apostolic gospel. We can understand it. It's something that we as individuals can discern. Now, in terms of the Eastern Orthodox, uh, when they make the claim that it goes all the way back to the apostles and they follow the tradition of the fathers, then again, I just want to point out, when we look at the Eastern Orthodox, they, they make the claim of the divine liturgy and all these things. You can look and say, okay, at best... When we look at the original sources, we're looking at the fourth century. So there's 300 years of of history between the apostles and where we find their divine liturgy, their other claims. One of the things that Eastern Orthodoxy always says about Reformed people is we're rationalists, right? We're the ones who just rationalize our Christian system. Well, the reality is when we say we're submitting to the word of God because it's self-attesting, the spirit bears witness, who's a real rationalist? Who's the one who's standing above the word of God saying, I declare this to be the word of God, but I don't declare this to be the word of God? Well, it's the Eastern Orthodox. It's the Roman Catholics. Because it's the church declaring what is the word of God. As Reformed people, we want to emphasize we're receiving it. And so very briefly, we say, well then, how do we know 
that the Spirit really bears testimony. Well, right here, Paul's saying that as the gospel is being preached, that Spirit's at work in you. It's that Spirit that's working through this message. This is why we, we don't see gospel preaching as merely moral persuasion. It's not merely persuading someone to believe. I, I can't make anyone believe. I could preach the most passionate, most incredible sermon, and I cannot force anyone to believe. The Spirit has to work through the gospel message. And that's the beauty and assurance of the canon, isn't it? That the Spirit will work through the gospel message. That's the assurance that we have, hopefully, all preachers, as they go into the pulpit. That the Lord is the one who is pleased to work through this message. But we think also of what we've seen with this church. Because we have this church as they are those, as they accept the word of God, as they receive the word of God, we have in 1 verse 6 where Paul starts this letter. How do they receive this word of God? What is the context of this? Well, they receive it in the context of affliction. And as they receive it in the context of affliction, they receive it in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's doing something very brilliant here. He's introducing in 1 verse 6, your circumstances haven't changed. It's not that, that the gospel is something that has radically changed your circumstances of hardship and suffering. The reality is that you were there. And I want to recall for you that you received it in joy in the power of the Spirit, and that same Spirit is now still at work in you through this same gospel message. It's true. It's working out. But we think also, just lastly as an example, in Luke 24, with the men on the road to Emmaus. And as Christ is there and breaking bread and they sit down, what, what do the men say when Christ vanishes? Wasn't our hearts burning within us? Now it's not that all of a sudden you get heartburn or something when you have this conversion. I mean, the, the burning of what's going on in Luke 24, we got to read it in light of Pentecost and in light of the Old Testament. It's using the language of that, that fire, right? And so it's fire being associated with, with cleansing, purifying, as you see at Pentecost and the spirit going out. So when you're saying, was not our heart burning within us? It's basically saying, wasn't that Pentecost fire the spirit? testifying that this was the Messiah. In other words, even in the midst of their doubt and as they're having their conversation, they were thinking, something is different about this man. So something's different. We can't quite figure it out because we're grieving the loss of our rabbi, but, but something's different. And all of a sudden, now it connects. In the power of the Spirit, they see the incarnate, authoritative Word of God who has been raised from the dead. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he's not saying they embrace the apostles because the fathers or the pope have told them that the apostles have authority. They embrace the apostles because they know that this is the message of Scripture. This is what has been predicted in the Old Testament. This is what the Spirit is testifying to be true, which is what the Belgic Confession is teaching us. So when we look at this and we ask that question, is this word true because we accept it or declare it? Well, 
That's sort of a false question, isn't it? The reality is it's true because it comes from God. Whether we accept it or not it really doesn't matter. God's God. His word is sure. And, and God's going to carry out the fulfillment of his word. So when the gospel goes out, it is that call to truly embrace Christ. Respond in faith. See his word, his promises is sure. It's a call to live in light of these canonical promises because it is God who validates and confirms his, his word. As the Bereans go through it, as Christ lays it out, as Paul gives the affirmation that the Thessalonian church receives this gospel message, it's the assurance that the word of God is sure. And so let us then embrace the substance, the truth, the, what, what's going on in terms of the canonical word, that we embrace Christ. And we understand that this word comes to us with authority because God is not a liar. What God has predicted with the Old Testament prophets, however radical it is, and it's radical. Apostle Paul, Ivy League education, studied under an incredible rabbi, misses the Christ. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit sees who Christ really is. So when he writes this to the Thessalonian church, he's going from a man who basically could have had a very easy, profitable, a very prestigious life to a man who moves to suffering for the sake of Christ. That is test, part of the testimony of the power of the gospel, that he goes through that life-transforming work. And the assurance is that as the gospel goes forth, this isn't just a language or a message of, of moral persuasion. It's radical transformation. The spirit being at work within us. Let us walk in the confidence of the certainty of our God, the certainty of Christ, and the surety of his word. And let us walk in the confidence of his promises. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.